what a 24 hours it has been. A leaked video showing the contempt that Boris Johnson's staffers hold the public in. A spokesperson resigning, Boris Johnson exposed once again as a liar. And now to top it all off, England is going into plan B new coronavirus restrictions. Is this a dead cat? Is this Boris Johnson trying to distract us from all the other nonsense going on at the top of government or is this necessary? We'll be talking about what happened in, in the press conference which happened just an hour ago in Downing Street, that same conference room where that leaked clip was released from, where it was filmed. I'm joined to discuss all of these massive topics by Dahlia Gabriel. Hi, long time no see. It's been way too long, but um, correct me if I'm wrong, you are currently bravely appearing as co-host on Tisky Sour with COVID-19. I am the statistic, yes, today. Um, I have COVID. I feel fine. I had a um, couple of days where I felt really, really bad, but um, I'm feeling okay, sort of warding off. I'm like banging soothers, basically, like they're nothing. But yeah, no, I'm feeling all right. It's mainly the isolation. Like I haven't left this room for any kind of significant period of time for like seven days. Okay, you'll be free at some point soon. Let's get straight on to the massive stories. On the 18th of December last year, 514 people died from COVID-19. And due to lockdown restrictions, many will have died without loved ones by their side. Also on the 18th of December last year, Downing Street held a Christmas party with a secret Santa, party games and cheese and wine. Four days after that, on the 22nd of December, a further 691 people died from COVID-19. Also on that day, the Prime Minister's spokeswoman Allegra Stratton took part in a mock press conference at Downing Street. This is what happened. I've Ed. just seen reports from Twitter that there was a Downing Street Christmas party on Friday night. Do you recognise those reports? <laughs> I went home. <laughs> <laughs> hold on, hold on. Um, uh, uh, Would the Prime Minister condone uh, having a Christmas party? <laughs> What's the answer? I don't know. I didn't was the party? It was cheese and wine. Just be clear, it's not. <laughs> Is cheese and wine all right? No. It was a business no. meeting. <laughs> I'm joking. <laughs> this is recorded. This fictional party was a business meeting. <laughs> and it was not socially distanced. That's right. Not only did staffers at Downing Street have a party against lockdown rules while our hospitals were overflowing, they then went on to laugh about it. It's a clip which has been met with outrage, especially by people who lost loved ones to COVID-19. Trisha Greenhall wrote on Twitter, Dear Allegra Stratton, on the day you partied, my mother called me breathless and feverish. I didn't visit. On the day you joked, she was admitted to hospital. I didn't visit. As you celebrated Christmas, she died without family by her side. I promise you, it wasn't funny. Also unimpressed was Lindsay Jackson. She lost her mother to coronavirus and is now a member of the COVID-19 Bereaved Families group. This is how she responded to the leaked clip. The fact that they're still lying about the fact that this party took place is compounding the awfulness. I can't begin to tell you how the 160,000 families who have been bereaved by this virus are feeling right now when we see the contempt with which our loved ones' lives 
and our lives are treated by this government, it's despicable. Despicable. Um, throughout the show, we'll be talking about what's happened in, in, in the 24 hours since that clip was released, resignations, embarrassments in, in the Commons and new announcements. Now, though, Dahlia, I, w- I want to start from that clip itself. W- what does it tell us about this government that they were joking last year when we had hundreds of deaths a day, we were in a lockdown, when they were joking about having a party? For me, what comes through in that clip is just the the nauseating cushiness between the press and the government the chortling as as people because if you remember that that time around that time last year it was nightmarish people were told last minute that they wouldn't be able to spend christmas with their loved ones we had as you said a hundred people dying a day that's a hundred people that are loved that is an irreplaceable number of people and the idea that there's some kind of clear boundary in britain between the British state and the mainstream British media, that's gone. That's a farce. And we saw that in the hiring of Allegra Stratton to begin with, um, where, you know, she moved from being a BBC producer, where you're supposed to be neutral to a, um, or impartial at least, to being a literal government spokesperson, which isn't a connection that happens overnight. That means that she was, you know, grooming and massaging that connection with the Conservative Party all throughout, like, as long as she was a BBC producer, And the fact that she is still, while being in this role in government, is literally married to the political editor of a major newspaper. That tells you the kind of the cushiness. And I actually don't think it's too harsh to say that if you have a really high up position in government, you shouldn't have or if you have a high up position in the the media, particularly in sort of political journalism, that you shouldn't have a very close personal relationship with someone who works in the government because there are otherwise there are just no boundaries because you cannot do objective reporting. When you look at um, in the US recently, uh, Chris Cuomo, who uh, was fired from his role as a CNN anchor because they found that while he wasn't directly reporting on the allegations of sexual harassment against his brother, Andrew Cuomo, he was using his media contacts in order to dig up dirt on his known accusers. And he was also giving his brother advice, using his knowledge as someone in the media on how to deal with the media backlash from the sexual assault allegations. And this is something that is to be expected. You know, obviously something like that will happen when you have this proximity. Now, personal relationships aren't the only thing that creates sort of an uncritical media. It's also about things like class solidarity, things that are much more amorphous, having the same political and economic interests, those things are harder to delineate. Those things are harder to sort of tackle because, as I said, they're more amorphous. But things like having a boundary of personal relationships between the media and the state seems like a pretty basic principle of having a strong and critical media. And the point is, is that not only, you know, we're just seeing one side of it in this moment, but we've seen it throughout the entire pandemic where the media have not held this government to account for the ways in which it has mishandled this pandemic, not just in secret through secret parties, but also in broad daylight for everyone to see. And so we should stop getting, you know, wondering why the press seems to continue to gaslight us by holding the Conservatives to a much different standard than they ever held Jeremy Corbyn, or even hold any kind of Labour party, um, even the Labour leaders that are more friendly towards them. Because actually, 
it's being set up that way. And that proximity, which is fostered through class solidarity, class alliance, but also literal personal relationships, like people being married to one another, people having being so close to people in government that they, you know, were best men and bridesmaids at their weddings. This is a really toxic relationship. And to me, that's what really comes through in this clip. And the human cost of that is evidence in the lives that have been unnecessarily lost as a result of the government's mishandling of the pandemic, which they continue to get away with in part because of the kid gloves with which the media have treated them. We're going to talk later in the show in a bit more detail about this speculation about what journalists did and didn't know about these parties. Lots of people wondering why it has taken a year for it to come out. First, though, I want to focus on the Conservatives, on the Tory party, and how they have gaslit us over the past week. Because as is often the case, just as bad as the original crime here is the cover-up that followed. Here's how the Tory story about the Downing Street Christmas party has evolved. All guidance was followed uh, completely during number 10. I don't remember 10 of this parties, but I don't even think there were parties that I'm aware of. First of all, it's the Daily Mirror. You've got to keep that, you know, you've got to take that I'm into sure account. they have their facts and, uh, and, and, um, and, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm confident that all the rules would have been followed at all times. I don't think there's anything there. I've been reassured that all guidance was carefully followed as it continues. Does that answer your question? No. Look, I'm not going to say anything beyond what the PM has said uh, in relation to this. We've got, let's just be clear what we're talking about here. Something that took place a year ago. Yes. Unsubstantiated. And people were dying. Unsubstantiated, anonymous claims being made. The PM has been crystal clear in relation to uh, any uh, uh, any circumstances, events in Downing Street that the rules were co complied with. And, uh, and the, the police have been very clear. They'll look at any letter, but they don't normally look back and investigate things that have taken place year ago. I don't think. Well, look, I've been assured that no rules were broken. Um, and so that means there's, there's nothing to show. Um, I don't even know if an event took place, but if it did, that no rules were broken. Um, it's for others to decide whether they'll go further than that, not for me. Surely you've asked if the event took place. I asked if, if, if an event took place and if uh, no regulation, if any regulations were broken, and I was assured none were. So you do know the event took place? Well, I don't know if it was an event. I don't know what the nature of it was. Should we call uh, it I a gathering? That, hold on a minute. Allegations have been made. Reassurances have been given. It's for others to decide whether they want to take it further. But from my point of view, I've asked for and received reassurances that no regulations were broken. That was the health secretary, the justice secretary, the policing minister, all saying no rules were broken. There wasn't even a party. We've now seen a clip. They were discussing a party and they were saying social distancing rules were not followed. It was lie after lie after lie. Now, this morning, unsurprisingly, no Tory minister put themselves forward to go on the TV. Lots of them had been booked, including Sajid Javid, but they cancelled. However, Boris Johnson couldn't hide forever. PMQs were scheduled for midday today, and the Prime Minister had to face the music. Here's what he said. That I understand and share the anger up and down the country at seeing number 10 staff seeming to make light of lockdown measures. And I can understand how infuriating it must be to think that the people who have been setting the rules have not been following the rules, Mr Speaker, because I was also furious to see that clip. 
And Mr. Speaker, I apologise. I apologise unreservedly for the offence that it has caused up and down the country, and I apologise for the impression that it gives. But I repeat, Mr. Speaker, that I have been repeatedly assured since these allegations emerged that there was no party and that, and that no COVID rules were broken. And that is what I have been repeatedly assured. But I have asked the Cabinet Secretary to establish all the facts and to report back as soon as possible. And Mr Speaker, it goes without saying that if those rules were broken, then there will be disciplinary action for all those involved. That was Boris Johnson throwing his staffers under the bus, but still denying a party took place. You'll also notice while he did apologise, it was for the impression that was given by the leaked clip, not for anything he has done. That is a a non-apology. Following that announcement that an investigation into the party, so the, the, the Downing Street party, would be launched, Keir Starmer rightly pointed out that all the relevant facts are already known. We know a party took place. We've now seen the clip. He then went on to say this. This virus isn't defeated. We're going to face other tests where the British people may be asked by their leaders to make further sacrifices for the greater good. Her Majesty the Queen sat alone when she marked the passing of the man she'd been married to for 73 years. Leadership, sacrifice, That's what gives leaders the moral authority to lead. Does the Prime Minister think he has the moral authority to lead and to ask the British people to stick to the rules? Not not only that, Mr Speaker, but uh, the Labour Party and the the, the Labour leader in particular have played politics, have played politics, Mr Speaker, throughout, throughout this pandemic. Throughout this pandemic, uh, the leader of the opposition in particular has done nothing uh, but play politics uh, to try to muddy the waters, uh, to confuse the public and, uh, and to cause needless confusion about the guidance. Uh, well, the public, Mr Speaker, have not been so confused and they have not been fooled. Boris Johnson is right. The public have not been fooled. According to a snap poll for opinion, fewer than one in 10 members of the public believe that a party didn't take place and 64% think one did. 65% think rules were broken. Opinion also found that 53% of the public think Boris Johnson should resign. And on that, the SNP's Ian Blackford agrees. Downing Street willfully broke the rules and mocked the sacrifices we have all made, shattering the public's trust. The Prime Minister is responsible for losing the trust of the people. He can no longer lead on the most pressing issue facing these islands. The Prime Minister has a duty, the only right and moral choice left to him. It is for his resignation. When can we expect it? Prime Minister. Mr Speaker, I'm, uh, the party opposite and indeed the other party opposite are going to continue to play politics. I am going to get on with the job. 
Dahlia, I presume Boris Johnson won't take Ian Blackford's advice. I'm not expecting him to hand in his resignation, but he is looking more vulnerable than ever, isn't he? A friend of the show, uh, Moya Lothian-McLean, wrote a really interesting article on this in Galdem today where she she talked about, she really articulated a lot of the things I was feeling when I was thinking, you know, is this going to be the thing that finally brings this government down? And she talked about how, yes, you know, there's certainly a sort of seething anger and frustration that is just under the surface of the British public right now. Um, you know, we all feel it. We all feel the bad vibes. But I don't think it's really going in full capacity where it needs to go. So far, this government has been so good, and the media has been part of this, in deflecting this kind of underlying sense of frustration and anger that people are feeling towards things like insulate Britain protesters, or towards trans people, or towards asylum seekers. Um, You know, Boris has made a career out of having an actually astonishing level of ability, of slipperiness, of ability to get out of the most catastrophic shit shows entirely clean. And this government, you know, his government is is the same. It, it's, it's an expert in finding a scapegoat. And whether that scapegoat is one of their own, which is what we just saw in that clip, or as I said, whether it could be, you know, a vulnerable group or community. You know, we have seen this government talk more and the media talk more about holding, you know, refugees seeking asylum on dinghies in the channel, more about holding them accountable than holding themselves accountable. We've heard harsher and more inciting language towards displaced people risking their lives to seek asylum here um, than we have about a government that has blood on its hands from how it's handled the pandemic. And the reason, again, that I'm hopeful but sceptical is because this isn't the first time we have seen this government treat this pandemic with contempt, that we've seen this government treat the people of this country during this pandemic with contempt. We saw it when we saw those abhorrent uh, examples of children's school meals that were distributed last summer. You know, it's been happening in broad daylight. It's not just in the form of these sort of secret parties. And I I also don't even understand necessarily why Allegra Stratton uh, is the first to resign here. You know, we've been talking about Boris Johnson resigning and, and instead sort of Allegra Stratton is the one who is who is taking the bullet for him. You know, I'm no Allegra Stratton fan. I think she's despicable and I think we're going to go more into to why later in the show. But she did what she was hired to do. She was there to cover the back of the government in media. The problem is, as I said, that overall cavalier and irresponsible attitude that the government has had to COVID which has cost lives, and it ranges from repeatedly ignoring scientific advice and locking down too little too late, uh, announcing things like Freedom Day, which was never actually going to happen, removing a mask mandate during summer, which made no sense, having poor and inconsistent public health messaging, and even to you know the prime minister refusing to wear a mask while he was in a hospital. These kinds of things, as I said, they don't, they didn't happen in secret. They happened in broad daylight. They were undeniable. And that's what worries me about whether or not this government will continue um, to be able to act with the impunity that isn't just a source of embarrassment. It's not just a sort of, you know, I was kind of caught red handed, but it's a serious thing that has cost many, many lives and many livelihoods because many of the numbers that we haven't counted uh, are those whose lives have been long term impacted by things like long COVID. 
um, which is something, you know, we haven't even begun to imagine what the impact of that is, much of which was unavoidable. So I'm hopeful, but I'm nervous about whether or not this will actually have an impact because of the precedent that has been set by this government, the lowering of expectations, the enabling of the media, and the fact that we don't have an opposition that, you know, the opposition is is okay at sort of pointing out individual scandals, but not great at delivering an overarching opposition narrative that people feel that if they, you know, leave one party, there's something to believe in in the other party as well. I think that point you make that Allegra Stratton was just doing her job is a really good one because, I mean, that was a practice press conference and she was asked what would have been the most difficult question from a, a journalist because it had been mentioned on Twitter about this party. You know, I don't think the you know journalist didn't pick it up properly. But she was just doing her job in that clip. And yet, like Boris Johnson is saying, oh, they, was, they, they treated it like it was a lighthearted thing. Well, what I got from that clip was that there was a culture of rule-breaking in, in Downing Street where it was seen as completely normal to break the COVID rules. And actually it would have been, you know, it would have been quite socially odd if when that, I think it was head of broadcast for Boris Johnson, asked Allegra Stratton that practice question, she said, I actually refuse to answer that question because I'm so outraged that the party took place. I mean, that wasn't, she wouldn't have been doing her job properly if she'd done that. So for her to now resign, and we are going to talk about how she's not a good person in a moment, but she has been massively scapegoated here. This is a Boris Johnson problem. And this story is also not going away because you heard from those clips in the Commons that Boris Johnson has committed to an investigation into the party held on the 18th of December. However, that investigation will not cover multiple other Downing Street parties that are believed to have taken place. For example, the Mirror have reported that on the 27th of November, Boris Johnson was present at a pact leaving due for an aide. That was Cleo Watson. Here, oh, at that party, he supposedly gave a speech. And that party will not be investigated. There are also rumours of another party also during the second lockdown. This one was supposedly on November the 13th. That's a claim made by Dominic Cummings, who today tweeted the following. Will the cabinet secretary also be asked to investigate the flat party on Friday the 13th of November? The other flat parties and the flats bubble policy. Of course, there, if there were parties in the flat, in the Downing Street flat, that would be more damaging for the PM because there's less plausible deniability than when it comes to the parties held in the larger number 10 complex. Also interesting what he's talking about there in terms of that bubble policy. I wonder what that is referring to. Also in another interesting twist, actually, I like this when I work this out today, it turns out that Friday the 13th of November, the, the day that Dominic Cummings is, is saying there was a party, is the day he resigned. So can we presume it was Carrie having a celebratory glass of champagne with her husband and whoever else they allegedly invited? Of course, the Tories want us to believe this was all in the past. Those at the top of government, we are told, were having a stressful time and they needed to let their hair down. The problem with that argument, however, is that lots of us were having a stressful time last December, and those who had parties with, with less powerful friends are now facing the consequences. Adam Wagner is a human rights barrister who has represented a number of people arrested and charged for lockdown breaches. He tweeted, 
I know I mentioned this before, but this keeps bringing back the utter distress of my seven student clients who got £10,000 fixed penalty notices for house parties. Families paying life-changing money they couldn't afford. Regulators and student authorities' disciplinary processes triggers. You can see, absolutely life-changing. A £10,000 fine for an ordinary family is huge. And then the fact that you've been subject to prosecution, as he says, that, that, that kicks in all sorts of life-changing processes. It's also worth noting that this isn't just an injustice from the past. Tristan Kirk at the Evening Standard tweeted on Monday, the Met Police happens to be this week prosecuting an alleged illegal gathering on December the 18th last year. So the same day of that party in Downing Street. He says that's not in Downing Street, but a house in Ilford. What's more sadly, Neither of these are the most tragic consequence of lockdown rules. On the 5th of December, so that's 12 days before the Downing Street party, a 24-year-old student at Nottingham Trent University fell to his death while hiding from council officers who had called at a party held during lockdown. When Dominic Raab first came out with that explanation, I wasn't entirely convinced by the idea that the police doesn't investigate things that happened a year ago. I think for normal people, you would absolutely be at risk of being investigated for something a, a year after the fact. Um, but I also don't think that, you know, we should be emboldening the police to go after anyone who broke lockdown a year after the fact, um, especially because the expansion of policing powers under COVID were extremely concerning in themselves. I, you know, I never thought that excessive policing was really a solution to this. Instead, creating general social consensus, uh, you know, leading from above, setting clear examples. These things are much more effective in actually getting people to do things like wear masks and comply with regulations. And another thing that actually is quite good at getting people to abide with these kinds of regulations is by making the regulations manageable. And the way you make them manageable is by not waiting until everything is in absolute disarray before you then force the public into the most reactionary lockdowns for indefinite amounts of time. Or you allow, you know, you mandate for masks to be worn and furlough and all these other sort of easier regulations on a sort of ongoing basis so that we again don't have to be pushed into these lockdowns that are very difficult to comply with because of how reactionary they are, because of how draconian they are. Um, but being strategic, locking down earlier for shorter periods and actually being good public health messengers, which this government has repeatedly not been, these are all much more effective in getting people to comply. So I think the question of should the police go back and investigate all of these different things, I think that's the wrong, that's not the right question. I think the question is, how do we actually give people the sense that they are in this collective effort and that everyone is doing their bit so that they actually you know, put in the effort and, and feel motivated to do the things that we all need to do to keep ourselves safe. Um, but I also think that this just tells us something that is so important and that we really need to learn about the notion of law and order as it's as it applies in the political sphere and sort of political discourse. You know, parties like the Conservative Party are always trying to promote themselves as the party of law and order. You know, we just saw Boris Johnson with that really ugly beanie that said police on the front of it doesn't suit him at all. 
But the left sometimes think, you know, oh, this is a talking point that we can kind of jump on board with. Um, it's something we can triangulate on, especially when the Tories seem to so obviously flout these principles on a, all the time. Surely this is something that we can gain traction on. You know, why can't the Labour Party be the party of law and order? And it's because law and order is not about law and order in any kind of neutral sense. It's about bolstering the police against particular groups of people that are imagined in the public consciousness to be disorderly in a threatening way. You know, the disorder that the Tories and, you know, the imagined disorder that the Tories and people who vote on the basis of law and order uh, imagine, it's not Tories doing drugs. It's not the Tories flouting regulations. It's not all of the manner of violations of, of actual law and order that we've seen over the past year. It's things like the imagined disorder of people seeking asylum or of undocumented people trying to get healthcare or housing or managing the movements of black and brown people. And that that's the imagined disorder that law and order is referencing. This is why we never see the police do things like drug raids or stop and search in the square mile of the city of London, even though that's where a significant amount of drugs are allegedly consumed and exchanged. But we'll see the police crawling around areas of South London um, because that is where, you know, black and brown people are seen to be um, exchanging or doing drugs. And so I think we have to really look at why, even though to us it looks really hypocritical, and if you're thinking about it logically, it certainly is hypocritical, but when you actually look at the social meaning and the political meaning of law and order as it has always been mobilized, particularly in Britain, it's actually not contradictory at all. The idea of you know rich white people in positions of power being able to have their property protected by the law, have their mobility protected by the law, and, you know, be in kind of and have total freedom of, of, of mobility and to do whatever they like, while everyone else's movements are so heavily surveilled and managed and punished, that is entirely within keeping of the law and order narrative. And so this seems a little bit sort of separate from the idea of this party, but I think it's a really important lesson that we need to take that we can't win at this game so long as we want to build the kind of society that we want to live, where it's not one rule for them and one rule for everyone else. So we do have an update from the police. They said, based on the absence of evidence and in line with our policy of not investigating retrospective breaches of regulations, the Met will not commence investigation at this time. They've said if the, if the Cabinet Office investigation finds any evidence, they can pass that on to the police and they will reconsider I suppose the thing I don't know, and this is where my legal knowledge isn't strong enough, is I don't think the police should be retrospectively investigating any breaches of, of lockdown rules. I do think it's slightly suspicious that they, you know, they, they raided some parties and not others. I mean, there were a lot of police on Downing Street. Have you ever been there? You know, there's, there's a lot of cops around. If there was a noisy party, they would probably be aware of it. But I suppose the legal bit I don't know is, is can you say there's a public interest in a prosecution because the people who are supposed to have broken the law were also involved in making the law i don't know that that's that's for someone who who knows more about legal precedents than i do but i suppose that's the only way i could i could back them reopening this case because i agree with the position of of, of don't go back um a year ago to, to lockdown breaches but i i can imagine there being a public interest in doing it because they made the rules let's go on to the person who did resign today in this scandal over the downing street 
party, Boris Johnson's spokesperson, Allegra Stratton, is a convenient scapegoat. The rule-breaking bash was held in the Prime Minister's house, not Stratton's. And when the party was uncovered, it was Boris Johnson, not Stratton, who decided to respond with lie after lie. Yet, thanks to one now infamous leaked video, it's Stratton who has resigned. Um, The British people have made immense sacrifices in the ongoing battle against COVID-19. I now fear that my comments in the leaked video of the 20th of December last year have become a distraction in that fight. My remarks seemed to make light of the rules. Rules that people were doing everything to obey. That was never my intention. I will regret those remarks for the rest of my days and now for my profound apologies to all of you at home for them. Working in government is an immense privilege. I tried to do right by you all, to behave with civility and decency and act to the high standards you expect of number 10. Rightly expect of number 10. As I've said already, Allegra Stratton is being used as a scapegoat here and she seems genuinely distraught. I'm, I'm not going to be here saying those those tears were fake. I do, however struggle to feel any sympathy for her. That's because before being employed to spin for an amoral prime minister, she was already putting two fingers up to working class people in Britain. In that tearful resignation clip, Stratton said she always tries to behave with civility and decency. But this is how she spoke to a working class single mum when she was employed by the BBC back in 2012. Explain to me, you are, just tell me a bit about your situation. You've got a daughter or a son? Daughter, yeah. She's going to be three next month. Um, We live together, we live um, just me and her. Um, I got that accommodation, not through the council, but I found it myself and then applied for housing benefits separately. Um, You're on housing benefit. You get help from the state for your housing. Don't you think that you should have possibly lived at home? until the point at which you could support your own house? Well, um, I I find that living at home with my mum just wouldn't be an option really, space-wise. There's not enough space for... How big's her flat or house? She does have a two-bedroom flat. It doesn't sound to me like your house and your mother's house, your mother's flat, is a bad place. So it's a choice you're making and it's a choice that comes with a price tag attached. Um, yes, it's it's a choice, but at the same time, you know, I, I don't think living in my mum's house would have been, it, it wouldn't have been constructive. But, I mean, we know, we, we both know people that are living with their parents, they don't have a job, um, and they have fights, that's what happens, but they don't have a financial choice. Um, I think this... That's the difference, because I'm asking for help towards. I'm not asking for a free hand out. Appalling clip, one of the worst interviews I've, I've ever seen on television. And in fact, the BBC had to apologise after airing it. That's because the single mum being interviewed, that Shanine Thorpe, complained that she had been misrepresented. In that clip, the viewer was led to believe that she was unemployed, that she was someone who lived solely on benefits. In fact, she had a job working for Tower Hamlets Council, a full-time job in fact, but needed housing benefits to help cover London's extortionate rent. She was someone following the rules. It also gets worse. Private Eye um, reported 
at the time um, about what happened before that interview. So Allegra Stratton had, had, had got that interview via Tower Hamlet's council before she had said the lofty, or they write, the lofty Stratton had dismissed other potential interviewees offered up by Tower Hamlet's council, including a couple with four children who had both lost their jobs and faced having to move out of London. You must have got people living on benefits as a lifestyle choice, she demanded of harassed council staff. For good measure, she then shouted across an open plan office floor that people should think about whether they can afford kids before they have them. Wow. That incident, though, didn't stop Allegra Stratton failing upwards. In 2015, she moved on from Newsnight to become national editor at ITV News. She then went to work as communications director for Rishi Sunak, who just happened to be her husband's best friend. And that was before moving next door to be the prime minister's spokesperson. Once there, the plan was to be a US-style press secretary. So that would be hosting public-facing press conferences in a £2.6 million briefing room. They were cancelled because the government realised that would mean they would be subject to a bit more scrutiny than they are comfortable with. And as you now know, in a remarkable twist of fate, this is now the only clip of Stratton in that room we'll ever see. I've Ed. just seen reports from Twitter that there was a Downing Street Christmas party on Friday night. Do you recognise those reports? <laughs> I went home. <laughs> <laughs> hold on, hold on. Um, uh, uh, Would the Prime Minister condone a Happy Christmas? <laughs> What's the answer? I don't know. I didn't want the party. It was cheese and wine. Clear it's not. <laughs> Is cheese and wine all right? No. It was a business meeting. <laughs> I'm joking. <laughs> this is recorded. This fictional party was a business meeting. <laughs> and it was not socially distanced. From shaming working class single mums on national TV to joking about the rich and successful breaking lockdown rules. Dahlia, the politics of, of the British establishment I don't think could be made any clearer than in comparing those two clips. The way Allegra Stratton treated Shanine Forp and the way Allegra Stratton talks about the rich and powerful who actually broke the rules. I would have liked to have seen those tears when she was confronted with what she did to that poor woman, where she not only misrepresented her condition, but even her if her condition was that she was unemployed and she didn't want to raise her child in a two-bedroom flat living with her mum, that's perfectly reasonable. So I think when I watch that clip, it makes me much less sympathetic about the tears to be quite honest. But I also want to go back to sort of what we talked about earlier in the show, which is when you think about the fact that she went straight from a job working in the BBC, which we saw her doing there, to being a Conservative Party spokesperson. And as I mentioned before, you know, that's not a connection that happens overnight. That means that she was nurturing that relationship. She was, you know, priming herself for such a role throughout her time working in the BBC. When you think about that media package, and you think about the narratives that the government constructed in order to push through some of the most brutal real-time cuts to the benefit system, to social security in this country, whether it's through the actual program of austerity or through the lack of repealing of the brutal impacts of austerity, which is just as bad as austerity, as far as I'm concerned. The idea that this government has ended austerity, it, it's true when you take it in the most abstract way, but when you actually look at what's happening on, in reality, 
it's not effectively true when you talk about the material impacts on people's lives. So when you look at those two things, when you look at the fact that this person was schmoozing and priming herself for a role in the government while working at the BBC, which is supposed to be an impartial an impartial outlet, which, you know, when left-wing people or people who are pro-Palestine try to do anything, they have to, they face the biggest barriers. And yet you look at the, the marriage of these two narratives and the way in which she, as seems here, used her position in the BBC to do the government's narrative bidding for them. Uh, it's really gross. It's really icky. And it's the kind of thing that we know happened. We know happens all the time. But when you see it retrospectively and you watch that clip, knowing what was going to happen later on, it's really, really uncomfortable, actually, to watch. It's going to be quite difficult for her to recover from this because she was very successful in her career. I think unjustifiably, I think that once you've made an error and a sort of disgusting error in the form of that interview, you shouldn't then get a promotion. She did. But she was in an important position at ITV News. She then went to work for the prime minister. And now because she is known as the face of this, this horrific incident, it's going to be difficult for her to go back into the media. I mean, it's, she's in a similar position now to Dominic Cummings, but Dominic Cummings is, is someone who I think doesn't really need a job which is based on respectability. And I think Allegra Stratton, she's going to struggle to go back in into the media after this. And as I say, as Dahlia says, we don't have much sympathy. Let's go to our next story, which we're moving on to, to COVID. Boris Johnson has today announced that in response to the spread of the Omicron variant, England will implement Plan B. That means from Monday, bosses will be encouraged to facilitate home working for their employees and nightclubs will have to require vaccine passports for anyone attending. Unsurprisingly, though, it was the leaked clip and the Downing Street party that dominated the conference. Can you stand at that lectern exactly where some of your team laughed and joked about COVID rules and tell people they must now follow your new instructions? And are you really asking the public to believe that you had no idea what was going on under your own roof? Uh, actually, the first thing I want to say, thanks very much, Laura. The first thing I want to say is that uh, I, I know that uh, today uh, Allegra Stratton has, has resigned and I, and I wanted to, uh, to pay tribute to her because she has been, uh, in, in, in spite of what uh, everybody has seen, and, uh, uh, and, and I, again, I make, I make no excuses for uh, the frivolity with which the, the subject was handled uh, in, that, uh, in that rehearsal. Uh, that people saw in that clip, uh, and there could be no excuse for it. And it was, it was. Uh, I, I can, I can totally understand how infuriating it, it was. But I want to say that Allegra has been uh, a fine colleague, has achieved a great deal uh, in her time in government, and was a particularly effective spokesman for COP26. She coined uh, the the coal, cars, cash, trees agenda and helped really to to, to marshal and, and to rally the, the world behind the agreement in COP26. And uh, I, I really, Laura, if you forgive me, I wanted to to say that because I think it's been, uh, uh, you know, a, a sad day for her as well uh, as an infuriating uh, event for many, many people around the around the country. And on that on that point, uh, look, I just want to I want to repeat that the, the fundamental point is that uh, I think the the, the British public um, notwithstanding the, the, the point that you make, can see the vital importance of the medical information uh, that we're giving. 
And that was a filibustering answer if you've ever heard one. He's asked, what should the public think? You're introducing new rules. We now can see that not only did your staff break the rules, they then essentially mocked the public for following them. How are they supposed to have any confidence in the new measures you are now taking? Now, persuasive question. His answer was not remotely satisfactory. I do think that in terms of you know, being serious about public health here, it's going to be really, really difficult for them to bring in any restrictions on, on parties or, or nightclubs, etc. if they need to. At this point in time, plan B, I mean, it really just involves people having to work from home and vaccine passports. I don't think these are things that people really mind, which is why they should have been bought in weeks or, or months ago. Let's have a look at what Patrick Valance and Chris Whitty said at that press conference. They were quite awkward for much of it. That's because they were being asked about this, this very awkward clip that happened in the Downing Street press briefing room, the room that they were giving that conference from. Actually, just Patrick Valance did give an interesting answer about whether or not restrictions this winter mean we'll face them in perpetuity. This virus has mutated a lot quickly, and that is sort of what you'd expect at this stage, that you start to see more mutations. This one's got a lot more than anyone thought would arrive that quickly, and that's what's caused so many concerns about it, spreading very fast. The good news is that so far, it looks as though when you get very high antibody levels with the booster vaccine, it's definitely having some effect against it in the laboratory studies. We need to watch and see what happens uh, over the next few weeks as we get more data on that. So the boosters remain incredibly important as a way of increasing immunity. What we're on is a road from pandemic to endemic, where this becomes a more sort of regular infection like flu or something over time. But we're in a sort of bumpy transition for that. And that's going to be difficult. And it is difficult now. And there are special measures that need to happen now to try and reduce the spread. It doesn't mean this is what happens in perpetuity. You would expect that over time, this becomes a virus which then has peaks every year, just in the way that flu does, perhaps. But it wouldn't be endlessly having new variants that always escape uh, escape vaccines to some extent, you would also expect that the vaccine will need to change over time, just as the flu vaccine changes year on year and you get a slightly different one because the thing continues to evolve a bit. So there's very interesting answers there. Um, well, you just saw there, Patrick Valance, Chris Whitty went on to sort of put more of the focus on the medical interventions that will hopefully mean that we won't need restrictions every winter. What I think about these restrictions, if you're interested, is that they probably are necessary at this point in time, but they probably won't do that much. I think it's 50-50 whether things like nightclubs will just be completely closed by New Year's Eve. I don't, you know, well, I mean, if they have to be, they have to be. I'd prefer them not to be because I've, you know, I've got plans for, for New Year's Eve. But if, if we're at a position where hospitals are at severe risk of being overwhelmed, which I think could be quite possible actually this winter, then that will have to happen. And the reason that could be possible, and this is sort of important to get our heads around, is not because any one of us is at severe risk from this Omicron variant. I think if we are, especially if we're boosted, or especially if, if, if you're vulnerable and you manage to get you know, your fourth shot, then that should give us significant protection against the virus. Obviously, there are some exceptions, and those exceptions are incredibly important, and the government should be doing everything to support people who don't have a strong reaction to the vaccines. But for most people... The vaccines are incredibly effective. And so the Omicron variant isn't necessarily that much of a risk to any one of us as an individual. The danger is 
that it's so transmissible, it seems like it's doubling every two to three days, that it could be the case that almost everyone in Britain gets sick, you know, at almost exactly the same time. I say almost everyone in Britain, that's a bit of an exaggeration, but millions of people get sick at almost exactly the same time. And that means that even if we are double or triple or even quadruple vaccinated, if just a tiny, tiny proportion of people end up getting hospitalized, if you've got enough people, enough total infections, that could cause serious, serious problems for the health service. They were being asked then, will this logic not apply all over again next winter? And what Patrick Valance is saying is that well, we are still in an interim period. There, there are a couple of ways of interpreting what, what he said there. So he did mention the virus potentially, or he seemed to imply that the virus might get more mild. I'm not convinced by that, um, at least not unless we're looking at sort of like a century. Now, I've heard epidemiologists um, or and virologists saying that, yes, that there can be an evolutionary pressure for a virus to get more transmissible, but less deadly, because obviously, if you're alive, you're, you're more inclined to, or you're more able to spread a virus, but that can take 100 years. So I think more what we are looking at is, or it's more likely that we need restrictions this winter than next winter, just because there's still so many unknowns. We still haven't made the perfect vaccine. We still haven't got the perfect rollout of the vaccine, hopefully you know, through, a, through an iterative process, we will get to a position where we can get through a whole winter without having to have any of these incredibly annoying restrictions, because I don't want to have these forever. But right now, probably are necessary to stop or to try and spread out that peak of infections. Let's go on to our next story, the final story of the evening. The truth is finally coming out about the rule-breaking parties held last year at Downing Street during lockdown. But a question many people have been asking is why did it take so long for us to find out about it? We know that the Tory party and the country's lobby journalists are as close as heat to fire. Is it really plausible none of them knew about a party attended by dozens of staff? Dominic Cummings thinks the answer is no. He tweeted, V unwise for number 10 to lie about this, but PM set the course of lying on COVID in spring when he decided to start rewriting history, deny herd immunity plan, etc. He also says some lobby hacks were also at parties in the number 10 flat, so trying to bury this story. Cummings has so far named no names. But we might like to speculate on who the most plausible candidates could be, what lobby hacks might have been there, or at least known about what went on. Now, we cannot confirm, I, I cannot here give you an exclusive where we know what journalist was there or what journalist did know, but we can go through some prime suspects. So the first one is James Forsyth. He is the political editor of The Spectator. He also happens to be married to, well, the now former spokesperson to the Prime Minister, Allegra Stratton. In the leaked clip that we've showed you a number of times on this show, she said she went home instead of staying at that secret party at Downing Street on the 18th of December. Did she go home to James? It was a lockdown after all. We can imagine he was probably there. And how good is she at keeping secrets? When he said, how was work today? Did she declined to say that she, as she left, there, there was a party going on. Another person of interest is James Slack. Slack is currently deputy editor at The Sun, but at the time of the party, he was working at number 10 as a spokesperson to the prime minister. In the wake of the leaked Stratton 
Stratton clip, Slack's newspaper did mention a secret party. However, as you can see in the top right corner, it wasn't one held in number 10, but rather a party put on by the Rolling Stones in memory of their late drummer. So the Sun is completely ignoring this story, and the deputy editor of the Sun was an advisor to Boris Johnson at the time the party took place. That's rather suspicious to me. Another paper which suspiciously ignored the biggest story of the day was The Telegraph. That's Boris Johnson's former employer. The story doesn't appear anywhere on the front page. They don't think this is remotely of note to their readership. And to see how suspicious it is, it is worth contrasting The Telegraph and The Sun to the front pages of other newspapers this morning. So on the front page of The Mail, a sick joke. That's how they have responded to that clip of Allegra Stratton from The Metro, number 10 party clowns. Again, leading with that, that image of Allegra Stratton. And then we also have a front page from The Guardian. PM accused of lying after number 10 team filmed joking about party. Dahlia, it seems likely some hacks kept these parties under wraps. But will we ever know who? Does it even matter? Because this isn't the fault of, I mean, it is, there obviously is accountability to be had, but the way that the media is structured is that, you know, if one person with this kind of attitude, one person who views journalism, not as a chance to hold truth to power, but a chance to actually be close to and friendly with the powerful, though there is, there is a long line of, of people waiting to take that spot. That is the, the modus operandi of being a major British journalist as it stands. Uh, and that's something that's happened over a really long period of time. I would say that the, the Murdochification of the press has inculcated this kind of relationship both here and across the pond. Uh, I think we were much, there was never a perfect time where the press was perfectly good at holding the power to account. But I would say when we had more diverse media in terms of geography, when we relied more on local newspapers, there was a little bit more of a loose leash. There was a bit more of a tradition of, of doing that, of doing that kind of investigative journalism. But the structure of the media, not only through the way in which power is being is being sort of uh, expressed in the way in which uh, the, the schmoozing between government and media figures take place, but also the structure of the media in that we have much less in investment in investigative reporting, in critical reporting. We see journalists that have a critical eye being repeatedly punished, uh, even if they do manage to get to those major outlets. We, you know, we'd still see them getting a really rough end of the deal and getting punished for trying to be critical uh, of the government and to be critical of the establishment. But it's also because the structure of our media means that we are much more invested in kind of exclusives and viral media and this kind of this type of media and, and scoops that rely on having that very cushy relationship with the government rather than, as I said before, more investigative pieces. And that's due to how our media is being funded. It's due to its, you know, the funding models and the distribution models of, of our media. But it makes me think that this is a much deeper systemic problem rather than something that is just about digging out some bad apples. The whole tree is rotten when it comes to, to the way that the British media operate. 
I'm so desperate for someone to reveal who these journalists are because, I mean, I agree with you structurally, it doesn't really matter. I mean, it's it's clear some people are in the know. Our sort of broader structural critique of the relationship between government and media, I think we can have that without knowing precisely who was there, but I would love to see some of them humiliated by, by being at this this party, which is now... It's similar to sort of, you know, being filmed on Epstein's pedo island. Like, none of them are pedos. There's no reason to think that's the case, but it's sort of, it's, th it's that one part you really don't want to be pictured at. No, no one wants to have their photo taken at the Downing Street party. It's like when someone shares on Twitter, you know, Peter Mandelson standing next to Jeffrey Epstein or something like that. This is not to imply they're pedos. Let's be clear. I'm just saying you don't want to be pictured at that party. It makes me worry really about the next coming few months, you know, with, with Omicron, with this variant, and with the fact that we're likely to see the full brunt of this variant in January. That's what I've sort of been hearing. And it makes me worry that we're going to see a repeat of what happened in Christmas last year, which was really, really awful. It was really devastating. Even for people who managed fine in terms of, you know, they didn't lose anyone. Obviously, many people experience really horrible things of losing, you know, tragedies. But even for, for people who didn't, it was just an incredibly disheartening mismanagement of the pandemic that just, it really took the wind out of people's sails. I feel like that was a real turning point after which people just kind of lost steam and lost sort of motivation um, because they didn't feel like we were all in it together. And it just, it's incredibly frustrating to see these same mistakes being made over and over again, especially because, okay, we, we have a reason to believe that being triple boosted will give a decent amount of protection against the Omicron variant. But this is a global issue. And the longer that this virus is circulating, the longer that it is being allowed to have free reign, um, because of poor handling by governments, and the longer that governments like the British government are standing in the way of other countries being able to cheaply and rapidly reproduce the vaccine, the more likely we are to have variants, the more likely we are to, to still be stuck with this virus. And we don't have a government that we can trust is going to do the things that need to be done and have the confidence of the public to have them do their fair share throughout. So it's really, really concerning. A very important note to close what has been a very enjoyable show, actually. I, I love a government crisis, even when it is quite offensive to us all. Dahlia, Gabriel, thank you so much for joining me tonight, especially with your COVID-19. I'm glad it's been mild. I wish you a speedy recovery, yeah, yeah. especially so you can finally <laughs> leave your bedroom. Oh my God. I, I hate having to announce every time I'm going to go to the loo. It's really embarrassing because like none of my housemates <laughs> want to be in the same room as me. So I'm like... Ugh. So is it, is it like yeah. a WhatsApp group chat where you have to be like, can I go for a yeah, pee Yeah, yeah. Literally like, guys, I'm going for a pee now. Like, hey, everyone scram. Oh. But it's, it's a small price to pay. It's very manageable. <laughs> I'm glad to hear. Thank you so much for watching Tisky Sour tonight. We'll be back on Friday at 7pm. So do make sure you hit the subscribe button. You've been watching Tisky Sour on Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.